This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR 102.7 FM and the show that we are about to present for you is Plato's Cave. We are going to be doing some film criticism. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm joined in the cave once more by Cerise Howard, Alexandra Hello, Nicholas, and the triumphant return of Josh Nelson, who's ridden in here on a gigantic white stallion, which he's then <laughs> slaughtered, eaten, and thrown it back up as a unicorn. That is how magnificent he is. We are very pleased to have you back in the cave, Josh. Oh, wow. <laughs> You've already rendered him speechless. <laughs> I'm done. That's as good as I'm going to get tonight as well. <laughs> it is good to have the whole team back here in the cave for some discussion. And as per usual, we're going to talk about three films. Set during the recent US housing crisis, 99 Homes stars Andrew Garfield as a man who, is, who, after losing his house, ends up working for a man who evicted him, asking himself just how far he will go to get his home back. The popular YA franchise The Hunger Games comes to an end with Mockingjay Part 2, where the young hero Katniss Everdeen, played by Jennifer Lawrence, asks just how far a resistance movement should go to overthrow an oppressive regime. And on home entertainment, the independent American comedy The Overnight, where a married couple new to town spend an evening with another married couple and have to ask themselves just how far they will go to get to know each other. (laughs) But let's start off with 99 Homes. Well, Roman Barani's film is pretty much... I mean, I guess on the box it's nothing really that complex, um, as you said... Thomas, the film, yeah, it follows a tradie single dad called Dennis, uh, played by Andrew Garfield, who's evicted from his home that has been foreclosed with his mum, Lynn, played by Laura Dern, and his young son. Obviously devastated and desperate for work, he finds himself, ironically, in the employment of Rick, played by Michael Shannon, the hard-ass bastard of a real estate developer that evicted him from his house in his first place and the film basically hinges on this kind of bittersweet irony that his new job is throwing people out of their homes in the same way that he and his family were evicted so while not exactly predictable i think that there's a definite dreadful inevitability about where 99 homes goes i was reading up a bit about uh, roman barani who's quite a big deal um, very celebrated director. And he was talking uh, in one piece about Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, the TV series from 1973, and he talks about how hard it is to be simple and how it usually is much more profound. And that's almost like a manifesto, I think, for 99 Homes. It's really not complicated what goes on in this film, but it's it's so effective. I mean, the simplicity of this film, both in terms of plot and, and I think the the way that we connect or the empathy with its victim heroes is just brutal. Um, I, I watch a lot of horror films. I, I think that I'm pretty tough. And the this film was almost unbearable at times for me. There was a kind of flesh-crawling, blood-curdling terror of watching people up close being evicted from their homes. And when I say up close, I mean up close. The camera is right in their faces. It's, it's pretty unrelenting. Um, there are really not words that I can find to kind of describe how upsetting i found these scenes um i guess the film is kind of governed by this constant looming question about dennis you know what would you do it's, it's really asking the audience you know what would you do but it for me it never felt really preachy or didactic or patronizing but at the same time i mean it's very much um there's moral gray area certainly for him but certainly in terms of the property development i think it's very clearly talking about just total evil the disgusting horror of the u.s property market and those who profit from it 
Yeah, just how exploitive some people can get to, to to make money, generate profit for themselves. I mean, this film as a whole works as such a nice parable for what happened in the global financial crisis, which is, you know, things just went south appallingly and loads of people were out of jobs. They couldn't afford to pay off their mortgages anymore and they were losing their homes and a lot of people profited from that. A lot of people got extremely wealthy. A lot of people who engineered the GFC got extremely wealthy as a result and still are enjoying an incredibly high quality of life and a lot of money coming their way. I mean, there's almost a sense of this film maybe giving you a bit of fantasy fulfilment as well, saying that, you know, there is a potential that you could expose some of these people. But you're, you, I'm with you, Alex. For the most part, this is almost a sick... I almost felt sick watching this film. Just that absolute awfulness of not having enough money to get by and i don't think any of us have well i'll just speak for myself i've never been in a situation quite as bad as some of these people but i think we've all been in those moments where money has been really tight and you've had to make some difficult decisions and and the next few days are looking a little bit tense and this film takes that feeling and accentuates it a billion times i I did feel almost sick watching these and my heart was just breaking for these people who are just being told you don't have a legal leg to stand on anymore because of what's happened and I like, the film, I like the fact that the film addresses the fact that the reason they were in financial difficulty is because they made some bad decisions about taking out loans and the banks were unscrupulous about giving them their loans. But it wasn't coming down on that side of, well, they're idiots, they got what they deserved. It was they were led to believe what they were doing it was quite normal, quite justified. You know, there was a whole industry designed around giving people dodgy loans. These people just... You know, they, they they weren't Harvard graduates with MBAs like none of us. You know, they, they didn't have this knowledge that this was a really bad investment. And so what happens to them is, is really heartbreaking. And, you know, two really strong performances by two very interesting contemporary actors. I, I, I just found this a riveting film. Yeah, incredibly powerful. I think that's the probably the key, the key word. And the sequence for me that was most effective is the one where Garfield, and it's a, almost a montage sequence where Garfield is evicting those other people from their homes and i think part of the strength of that sequence is that the actors or the people he's evicting don't seem like actors they feel very much Definitely. like real it's always I a funny to say many of them weren't i believe many of them were people who had been through this process for real and there was something about that doorstep confrontation which reminded me a lot of two days one night and in stylistically and tonally as well the uh, the Darden brothers yeah that's a good film with Marion Cotillard yeah. and you think about her reactions and how how gritty they were and how honest they were and that's I think the, the power of this film is when it's being most honest and and empathetic as well and that's the, the source of its power the other uh, film which this film really reminded me of in quite strong ways is Wall Street I mean this is Essentially, the Michael Shannon character is a kind of Gordon Gecko of the real estate industry, and even the, the style of much of the dialogue. There's I mean, there's some very iconic type speeches in here where Michael Shannon is telling Dennis how the real world, i.e., the, the mercenary capitalist world, works. And a, a great line where he says, "America doesn't bail out the losers. America was built by bailing out the winners, by rigging a nation of the winners for the winners by the winners." I think that that speech that he gives, and that's just a brief part of it, is the equal of the kind of greed is good speech of Gordon Gecko, And I guess the other parallel between Wall Street and this, and maybe in a more contemporary context, it's interesting, is in terms of the father-son relationships. I think this film is fascinating in terms of exploring father-son dynamics because Dennis's father isn't around. Michael Shannon's father isn't around. Garfield, I think, is deliberately cast to be 
youthful looking. Like he doesn't actually look like a dad when we first see him, and then we realise that the young boy he's with is, is in fact not his brother, but his his own son. I don't think the Michael Shannon character has sons as well. So you have this sense of the father son representing the kind of the carry on of the the capitalist legacy, and also the way that, that the Rick character is not a um, benevolent father. He's the, the primal father of Freud. He's the one who wants to eat his offspring in order to kind of maintain his legacy. And Oliver Stone was completely aware of that. I mean, there's a, a scene in that Wall Street, uh, Money Never Sleeps, I think was the name of the sequel, where we have a painting by Goya of Saturn devouring his son in the, in the background. I mean, this film feels like another extension of, of exploring contemporary father-son relationships and this scepticism towards authority figures in a, in a kind of contemporary context. The film that this made me think of about a lot and it's interesting because 99 Homes as I said has been really critically championed like this is a, he's a darling you know for, for a lot of film critics um, the film that it reminded me of is was a bomb it, you know I got booed at Cannes is uh, Ryan Gosling's directorial debut Lost River which I know that I've mentioned before but that's set in Detroit and it's a it's a genre film it's a horror film so it's very different in a way but it very much focuses explicitly on this kind of people people struggling people making bad deals with banks struggling to save their homes in a kind of relationship that is like kind of booby trapped to have them lose um and the banker in in that the banker figure in that film is actually ben mendelson and i loved this idea i mean it, they'd actually make a really interesting double bill with playing these two characters off each each other because mendo does that obviously to perfection but michael shannon i mean I, I think i would repeat what you guys have said the performances and the casting in this film are immaculate um michael shannon really came to my attention in William Friedkin's Bug from 2006, which I think is... Yes, I think that's when I first noticed him Yeah, and that that really... I mean, for me, that film is like... That was the... That was the comeback of William Friedkin. Like that—that that was Definitely. such a devastating and, and, yep. and impactful. Is that even a word? Impactful? Sure. Impacting. It's not, but people are using it left, right, and centre, so it'll pop up soon <laughs> in the dictionary. It was a great. Yeah. It was a great film. It's become a verb. It was a. It was <laughs> impact. Adjective. Like party. Yeah. Was that Ashley Judd was playing opposite him? Yeah, and that yeah, was, yeah, yeah. And uh, Harry Connick yeah. Jr. That's right. Was really good in it too. Oh, Here we God. are. That was a great um, film. And then Michael Shannon in I think it was Take Shelter. Was it? Yeah, he was yep. extraordinary. Yep. In that, film. that was the really big breakthrough role, I think. Yeah. But. Um, to his credit, Andrew Garfield did this straight on the back of the critically kind of shit canned uh, Spider Man reboots. Can we say shit canned on the radio? You can. Oh, okay, I want to say I was the one. P- oh, no. Myself and Martin Pedler, I think, were the two people in the world who Shout championed out to Martin. That, that film. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I mean, he chose to do this straight on the back of them. I don't, I don't think he could have picked a better project to really show off his acting chops. Um, I haven't seen the Spider Man. Spider-Men reboots. <laughs> I'm really struggling with the English language tonight. Uh, it's been can- I think Garfield's career as Peter Parker is sadly over, but there's one other a- actor in this film that I want to mention, and that's Laura Dern. I don't think she gets enough screen she time. She's amazing But she's this. great mm-hmm. in the limited time she is, as she was in, I think, was it Wild? Wild, yeah. Two incredible performances as yep. this sort of distraught mother figure trying to keep the domestic space you know, in, intact. I think two, she's two very American films too, looking at some of what's wrong with America and yeah, it's interesting that she plays this kind of um, yeah, maternal maternal figure but a maternal figure with Laura Dern in, in charge is, is, is very different to what you'd normally expect. Let's hope the next one is her front and centre. I would love to see more Laura Dern in anything, basically. Um, um, <laughs> Creepy. Wow, this got weird real fast. David Lynch, are you listening? Yeah, pa- paging Dr. Freud. Inland Empire 2, we're ready. Yeah, um, 
Mm. <laughs> Look, I really like that idea of the sort of the imagery of the father eating the son, the way that works with with class, because that's sort of what happens in in America. And we saw that in Wall Street, and I think this film is like the, the contemporary version of Wall Street, and it's definitely speaking to contemporary events. But you know, it, 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 in class sense, it is the upper class are devouring the poor. There's no trickling down. There's no looking after. It is absolute devouring. I, I heard a, a stand-up comedian recently saying class is not meant to exist in America, but there are two classes. There's the rich and the people who are stupidly convinced that they will become rich eventually. And, you know, that, 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 that nails it. That, that's the sentiment in the that, that great film, No, all about the... Um, mm, that's uh, an amazing uh, where film. Where was that film from? Chile, yeah. yeah. The Chilean film, No, where somebody says that's the secret to capitalism. But it's not that everyone will get rich, it's so everyone believes be they rich. will be. Yep. Yeah, and they believe it will happen to them. All they got to do is just work hard. Mm. Um, I, look, I, I really did love this film. I was, I was almost disappointed that it, his activities moved into the realm of... Um, illegality, um, criminality. Like, I, it, it was working for me at the most profound level when everything he was doing was legal because it showed you how the system itself was inherently uh, appalling. It maybe lost ever so slightly a little bit of bite when he started being an obvious criminal. I agree because it goes against that simplicity. Mm. And I think that simplicity is absolutely the, the core power that drives this film. This is one of those films that it, I, I adored it. Um, I, I just thought it was so tight and so powerful and I never want to see it again. <laughs> I just I never want to see it. I never want to think about it. It was too hard. <laughs> We're talking about 99 Homes here on Plato's Cave. Uh, coming up in just a moment, the final Hunger Games film. Three, triple, ah. Oh. We're going to take a look at the final film in the Hunger Games franchise, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2. Yes, this is the fourth and final of The Hunger Games franchise, directed by Francis Lawrence, who directed Parts 2, 3 and 4, taking over from Gary Ross after the first one. There may be a story of why he was nixed, but I'm not privy to it. Um, look, I may as well say off the bat that I'm a fan of this franchise. I don't think any of the films are perfect, but I've enjoyed a lot of them, and I think part of the enjoyment of watching these blockbuster films, apart from Jennifer Lawrence, and we can talk about her later, is the are way... You, are you okay? You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> or, or sooner, John. I just, uh, I think I started sweating <laughs> profusely. Um, is the way in which they meld uh, the joys of blockbuster cinema, the spectacle cinema, the you know the the hero-driven type uh, narrative, with what I think is a pretty savvy political critique, particularly given the form of the of the blockbuster. It, it reminded me in some ways this film of Snowpiercer in terms of the way in which it found struck a really nice balance between those two sort of joys. Uh, if you haven't been following the, the franchise, then you probably this is certainly not the entry point for you. Uh, the trajectory of the of the four films, I'm going to sort of take a broad look and then we can look at this in, in more detail but the the first film was basically the sort of the battle royale type origins of children killing each other for televised sport for the the cultural elite of the capital under the leadership of the evil president snow played by the ever wonderful donald sutherland and i like that as the franchise has developed it's taken this idea of of the role of media and, and how it's related to power and violence and politics and explored it in different ways. And I, I think th these last two films have been interesting in terms of the way it's moved out of the kind of the realm of the Hunger Games TV sport to an exploration of war. And the second, the Mockingjay Part 1, really looked at a propaganda war where we see Katniss, the central character played by Jennifer Lawrence, sort of feeling like she's a, a pawn between the rebels led by President Coyne 
played by Julianne Moore, and the and the Sutherland, the President Snow character, and feeling kind of caught in between and and dealing with the morality of that. And I, I think this film has moved beyond just this idea of propaganda to look at what are the consequences, particularly in terms of collateral damage. There are people in the capital who are ultimately going to be kind of murdered or going to be the victims of this war. And I, I think it deals with this, this central idea in a really complex way without sacrificing character and without sacrificing spectacle. There's a number of really classy, well-executed sequences, particularly one that seems straight out of the, the James Cameron Aliens playbook mm. in a subterranean a sort of sequence. And I think this film, for the most part, with maybe my very minor gripe about the final coda, really provides a satisfying conclusion to this franchise. I was enormously impressed with this. I've, I've liked the entire franchise like you, and, and I think one of the things that really marks the first two films is their critiques of the way violence is used as spectacle and the way the media like to feed us images of, of violence to keep us... D- distracted i suppose from real real events and and this really awful idea of children basically being sacrificed to kill off each other which you know i say this every time i talk about these films it's a concept that dates back to ancient roman and um greek mythology so you know these films aren't ripping off anybody um, i wasn't implying that with no the no battle you, you won't right i'm just i get so defensive because there's always somebody who goes well battle royale did that it's like yes <laughs> shut up idiot it's been done before <laughs> it's a subgenre yeah well, it's own thing also yeah, the most the dangerous game way yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Das Millionspiel is the German version from the 70s. I mean, it's the the kind of human game. Turkey shoot people. It's or not. Um, (laughs) It's that same idea. Yeah, it's an archetypal idea, and I love the way these films uh, embrace that idea. And I think one of the really impressive things is it didn't make the violence into spectacle. Even though they're exciting and engaging films, all the big, you know, the kill sequences aren't made to be pleasurable. They're all quite upsetting, and, you know, they use quick edits so you don't dwell on the bodies getting battered and beaten up. So I was wondering how they were going to take that integrity into the final two films when the story is about resistance. It's about fighting back against the oppressors. And, yeah, so sophisticated, I think, with the way they've handled this idea because very quickly we saw in the last film they introduced the ideas that the rebels are starting to behave exactly in the way that they're accusing the um, the capital of, of behaving. And that comes out even more, with even more energy in this, this final film, this, this real internal conflict she's having about, you know, we are becoming, we are doing the kind of things... You know, we're becoming just like them. We are capable of just the same amount of human rights abuses as, as they are. And even Katniss sort of has this crisis of, of faith when she's so horrified by what's happened to her friend. She just gets this bloodlust. Like, you know, mo- most of this mission... Most of this film, she's on a mission to murder the the president, the, the Donald Sutherland character, and, and I just love the way it resolved. And and I, you know, this is a a really bittersweet film. I, I don't think it delivers one. It's anticlimactic in the traditional sense. It doesn't give you the big storming, you know, the the, the fortress and cheering. To its credit, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but I think it remains emotionally satisfying. I think it's very bittersweet. Huge compromises are made by the characters morally, and and they're all, I think, quite scarred emotionally as. A result of what happens so yeah it's not goodies versus baddies which makes it an entirely appropriate film in the current climate i uh didn't see the third film or the first in this series so i've come in you've seen two uh, and four i have wow yeah <laughs> but i'm still able to join a whole lot of dots yep um i realize that katniss had a, a sister i didn't know that or remember that but that seemed important in this last film 
Um, but I, I was taken by other things altogether because my, my interest wasn't really in the overarching narrative. I couldn't really care less who won. You know, were the goodies, baddies? Were the goodies? Everyone seemed a baddie. Everyone was playing each other off against one another. That's, so that, whole, that was the point, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the whole, whole idea that ultimately uh, somebody might have to be assassinated in order for someone to win seems a, a little right-wingish to me. You know, that there couldn't be another solution, a peaceful solution. Maybe that's how dystopian a world it is and so be it. But, you know, that, that dystopian side of things is, is well represented architecturally. I actually really enjoy the architecture in these films. So you've got all this um, really fascist uh, but also brutalist architecture in the city itself in the, mm. the very core uh, near the snow's place which weirdly is some sort of neoclassical p- dream palace uh, so the, the hearkening back to certain european styles of architecture from planet earth is you know our earth our reality i mean where is the hunger game set i'm not clear on this from the whole mythology i'm, I'm not up to speed with that do we know where it's I, even set no i don't know whether it's meant to be a far distant future or another world i think it, it's supposed to be earth isn't it pan am as as julian moore's clicked accent keeps referring to it pan am which is yeah. like pan am or pan am yeah it's just this, this weird mishmash of european cultures and architecture so we see this medieval garb which is very, again very european and quite stylish mm. and uh and, you know, stylized for the film so i enjoy all that side of things i the suspenseful sequence underground reminded me of um i forget the director's name neil someone marshall maybe descent, descent. Yeah. descent. Yeah. yeah that's a really suspenseful sequence that works really well though what those monsters were i don't know do they fit into the the logic of this universe at all I, they do, I, do I, they? I had to actually look them up the, these are the mutants named, known as the mutts which are kind of creatures that they've that the capital have experimented on and they're using the games to kill off people who are performing too well. Yeah. Well, while this uh, film has just opened, I've been seeing Miklos Yancho's films at the Melbourne Cinematheque, which really investigate power and abuses of power and uh, by, by various regimes, allegorically, but also quite specifically, uh, which take this whole sort of uh, outlook on, on that um, subject matter much more poetically. And, of course, those films speak to me much more and they speak to a very specific real Europe, and I, I, I enjoy those films a lot more than this. But I have to say one thing: this film probably, well, definitely a lot more design uh, accident rather than design. That fascinated me was how they incorporated Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. This film is genuinely haunted uh, because there's an actor in it who, as we well know, uh, passed away uh, before we got to see this film, and he's there. And some of it was clearly shot before he died, and other times he's incorporated in the footage or slightly ingenious ways are found so that he needn't be in the film even though his character is still active in it and uh i I find it creepy in the extreme that he's there i find it really confronting and unsettling and um i gather he's meant to have become quite a a more benevolent force uh in in the second film i saw he was the evil game master was he not yes he was i think we discover at the climax of the second film that he was working on the inside all the time and he was one of the good guys spoilers Spoilers. well one of the relative good guys yeah Yeah. so (laughs) we're all looking to see those calls coming in (laughs) so by 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 this film he seems to be a a goodie and yet Mm. there's this whole business of him just haunting the film because we know the hoff the real Hoff. Forget about that Hassel, Hassel Hoff guy. But he's, yeah, he's, he's dead. And it's... Um, yeah. I, I found I, it sad. I yeah, found it really I found it, sad. I found that really sad. Because the that, very first scene he's in it. So if this yeah. film is downbeat overall, it really takes another dive down in a, a way I kind of admire and I think they were respectful. But yeah, seeing him on screen was powerful. 
the first time he appears, I'd actually forgotten briefly somehow that he was in the film, mm. and I got choked up like immediately. It was like a gut punch because he has such screen presence, and it's you know it's hard not to associate him with the tragedy of his of his death. And yeah, it, it kind of brings another level of of emotional kind of content to this film, which the film doesn't sacrifice either for the politics mm. or the spectacle. My biggest fear, I think, going in to the first Hunger or coming out of the first Hunger Games film and having not read the books was given the presence of two male characters, both who seem to have a romantic association with the Katniss character, is this going to become another freaking Twilight film? And I'm so happy that, having watched all the films, that it it takes a back seat. Sorry, Twilight fans, (laughs) but, you know, this is not the franchise for you. I'm really impressed that it never made that horrible romantic triangle something that overcame or was somehow more significant or important than the politics of the film Mm. or her own sense of self you know she's not a character who's defined or defines her sense of identity herself by her relationship to these two male characters you know so you have these these extremes of the of twilight representing absolutely the nadir of of ya adaptations and i think this represents the pinnacle in terms of some of these ideas we've talked about i think i'll broadly agree with that i mean i think this is definitely the best of all the ya franchises i just enormously impressed and and my kind of affection for these films has really grown over the over the time as well and in each new film has made me really invested in even more and i think a lot of it has to do with that strong character that jennifer lawrence absolutely you know she just nails it she's she's brilliant in this role and she's allowed to be a strong tough determined character who also has moments of of doubt and insecurity and vulnerability i mean she's a fully rounded character and um yeah it it is it is a makes a fascinating comparison to twilight where the the main character bella is defined by these two men she's torn over and a lot of the film a lot of Twilight is spent with these two guys basically fighting over her. I mean, you know, there's almost literally a scene where they're pulling one arm each and I'm waiting for her to get split down the middle. And I think even the Harry Potter films, there's one of those where there's a sequence with Hermione asleep in bed and when they're in a tent. And it's one of the later films that will merge into one for me. But I think Ron and Harry sit up and just talk about that Hermione's all right. Wouldn't you mind having a go? I think the dialogue's a bit written a bit better than that. <laughs> right. um, that was some slash fiction right there. Yeah. <laughs> And then, well, I, I have done that with the Twilight films. <laughs> yes, so I have okay. written the... Never mind, let's not go into my <laughs> side projects. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I, I really like the, the fact that she has these two romantic interests who don't dominate the film, and it's really interesting the way those characters are evolved and how she relates to them uh, evolve. It, it's, it's complex, it's not simplistic, and, and these are two quite interesting... The, you know, it's not one case of one being the villainous character who you're hoping she wouldn't go with and the other one being the nice guy. They're both well-rounded, interesting characters. Um, so, yeah, for a YA franchise, I think this is so sophisticated to be dealing with subject matter of, of this gravitas. And I think in, in, in popular fiction, full stop, I think this is right up there. I mean, I just said I think it's the best of the YA franchises. I think it's the best of the modern franchises, maybe on par with Nolan's Batman films. But I think just in terms of delivering a really thrilling experience, how well made it is, how well acted it is, and actually having some real substance behind the, the yeah behind the storytelling. And some of the politics quite prescient, given we were watching it a week after... Less than. Less than a week after the events in Paris and, and Beirut. And, and, and ongoing conflicts outside of that. It's hard not to watch this without 
being reminded mm. instantaneously, particularly those the bombing scenes and the war scenes towards the the climax of this film, that you know. We haven't really learned. I mean, Susan Collins, the, the writer of the, the books, was apparently inspired, if you want to call it that, by the events of Gulf War Two and the mm. role of the media within that and the, the politicking. I don't think we've learned much, and I think that's a point that the film really kind of raises, and, and through the Philip Seymour Hoffman character too. Yeah, well, the real world's not getting any less dystopian presently, so films like this uh, are going to continue to resonate. I don't think that's going to stop being the case anytime soon. Uh, and as we speak right now, I believe Brussels is in complete lockdown, so a major European city more or less abandoned. Uh, so I feel like I've missed something through obviously not having seen the whole series, but uh, I'm generally not drawn to the blockbustery type films, and this has appealed to me rather a lot more than, say, most well, all of the superheroes uh, or the Marvel franchise and so on. Some of them are kind of fun. This one, okay, yeah, it does engage with some issues that again is it accident or design but are, are very much contemporary real world issues and um if anything it's rather more potent uh for that I, I don't know if that's going to be grasped by the young adult audience that might especially be drawn to this and will presumably make it a huge box office hit but then i'm sure they pretty well um tapped into the news the same news feeds that we all do we're all on i think they will yeah Yeah. because the the kind of conflict they've grown up with is the kind of conflict explored in this film um if anything it's a bit unfortunate i mean the timing is unfortunate i mean hang on there's a lot of unfortunate things going here it's 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 a minor trivial thing that the, the the timing of this film's release creates some very uncomfortable association that i don't think was intended at all i mean the the characters even though there's some there's lots of moral gray zone in this film the characters who we are following are the rebels who are attacking a city and i don't think for one second the intent is that we were meant to read anything on that to do with very immediate new events no though we might uh, be meant to read into something in the uh the monolithic media uh uh, that is in, in this film and I think throughout them that there's basically one channel it's very 1984 mm. it's, uh, it's a, a classic dystopian uh, device just to have one thing that is absolutely ubiquitous it's in every room you find yourself in whether you wish to switch this thing on or well, you don't have a choice it's just Mandatory there broadcast yeah it's very yeah. 1984 yeah. isn't it yeah. and I like the idea that the rebels have their own camera crew who just look like a bunch of kids from Vice who are there <laughs> sort of showing the alternate point of view and look and there's another scene in this film which I'm sure they wouldn't have included a year or two years ago, and that's the sequence where, you know, our, our rebel heroes blend in with the refugees as a clever way of getting into the city to to attack. And it was just watching that, thinking, well, that's a plot device, clearly. But how unfortunate is it they suggested that with with some of the hyster- hysteria going on about what what the refugees might be doing in the real world? Um, that's just a minor detail, though. I think I think I don't think I'm trying to cover up for that film. I think I'm just saying it's a really yeah, mind, it's an unfortunate coincidence. But the, the Hunger Games. Um, the yeah. booby traps. Why are they so elaborate? Just throwing that out there. Just <laughs> well, for the spectacle. For the yeah. spectacle. The but idea is e- e- even when the rebels are advancing on the city, they want to mm. turn their deaths into entertainment. Yeah, even before then, though, these, this whole business of pods. I mean, what a lot of trouble they must have gone to to set all of those things up. All <laughs> of them. TV's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little wonder people are starving out in the countryside. I mean, really, the money's not going where it ought, is it? I mean, really, this is no basis for a good government. <laughs> Actually, Cerise, I've been wanting to talk to you about your pretty media. Mediocre booby traps. Yeah. <laughs> you can really lift your game. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll do that off the air, actually, Alex. Shall we? We'll sort it out Three triple R. The Overnight, uh, an American 
independent comedy. It screened at MIF earlier this year and it's just popped up on Home Entertainment. Yeah, and it's my privilege to lead on this one. Let's see how far I get... And you'll, you'll, you'll give interrupted it the respects by the, the first spate of non-jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fancy my chances of getting through this um, without So was that non-jokes or knob-jokes? Wang. <laughs> Wang jokes. It's already started. Hey, has anyone seen writer-director Patrick Bryce's previous film, Creep? Yes. Yes, I knew you'd be the yes. one of us who has. Any good? We don't know. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, most people really liked it. I was not a fan. Yeah. Was it sort of mumblecore like this one? Yeah. yeah. yeah I've kind of found mm. footagey mumblecore. Ah, yeah. Mumblegory. Du- Duplassy. Very Duplassy. Duplassy. This is dead Duplassy. Also dead. Duplassy. This is a Duplass Brothers production, uh, like the recent Tangerine, but also uh, other films we've covered on Plato's Cave in recent times, The Skeleton Twins. Probably we covered safety not guaranteed, did we? I did. Yeah. Was it the time travel one? Yeah. 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 If, if it was an independent American film, yeah. chances are the Duplass brothers are involved in some yeah. way. Or yeah, Joe Swanberg. Incredibly prolific. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, this, this is usually not my bag. I was rather um, mm, cheery of taking this on, knowing that it would be a, an indie, American indie sex comedy. Uh, a sexual dysfunction comedy um, uh, relationships, not exactly on the rocks, but which become rocky uh, when two couples meet. Now, our couples, Adam Scott is Alex, his Parks and Recreation's Ben Wyatt. He's with Emily Taylor Schilling, Orange is the New Black's Piper Chapman. They are newbies in Los Angeles. I'm not quite sure where they're from, but you get the sense that they're... Seattle. Yes, are they? Yep. Okay. Hence, hence the facial hair on is that, Yeah, it's, it's, it's very <laughs> 90s look, isn't it? And they, they make out as if they're sort of yokelish and it's going to be difficult to somehow get up to speed with Los Angeles where they know nobody. Well, and, and when we first meet them, uh, it's actually a sex scene this film opens with where, where she asks him to... to uh, circumnavigate her penetratively <laughs> speaking um, to, to, to what end? Wow. Yeah. I'm trying not... I'm trying to elevate this above the knob jokes that are sure to, to issue forth momentarily. I, I have really fared the worst with this review already. Now, the sexual dysfunction is as much as that they, they don't seem to be able to bring each other to orgasm, so they each lie side by side and, and have a... Well, attempt... A, a, oh, people, please... Come on. Yes. That's what and she yes. said. As we all say during sex, stop laughing and just get on with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they are trying to, but uh, their young son interrupts them and uh, it is almost humorous. Later, <laughs> later at the park, they are considering their place in the world. It's all a bit difficult, but lo and behold, their son is less of a problem now all of a sudden. He's found a friend, and the friend has a father, and the father is played by Jason Schwartzman, who is Kurt, and he lures them to his house, uh, which he shares with Charlotte, who is French. She's French. Ooh la la. Yeah. Played by Judith Godresh. Um, well, he, he invites them round and they say yes. Yes, eventually. They, they <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's not a house, it's a palace. And they're very impressed and feel a bit out of their depth. Oh, the ingenues that they are, poor dear little things. Um, but look, it seems like they've finally made a friend. The, the Kurt seems a bit weird, but they're sort of going with it, rolling with it. Um, have some tea or something, dinner, I don't know. Uh, maybe they should leave. No, Kurt says, I will put the children to bed. He is a child whisperer. And before terribly long, the children are off in bed and the adults are playing. And the play leads from one thing to another. And maybe are these their new best friends swingers? Are they, what are they? What are they playing at? Why does one of them paint assholes? Why? <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's, it's a film about two couples, one who are quite repressed, one who are very much free. Or are it, they? Or are they trying to seduce the other one, maybe? Yeah. Is, in fact, this whole thing an extremely conservative film dressed up in ooh-ah, sort of humour, carry-on style, only translated to an American uh, milieu, uh, very 2015, but maybe also kind of 1950s-ish, actually, because I think this film is ultimately really conservative. Mm. And and any suggestion that uh, sexual relationships that are on the rocks a little might be uh, improved by introducing other folks into that uh, coupling, so it's no longer a coupling, but it's a tripling or a, a quadrupling, um, is doomed to fail, or is it? I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is a particularly great film, but I'm looking forward to your knob jokes by way of rebutting <laughs> my, my intro. Go for it. I think um, Bob, Carol, Ted and Alice, the, is, that, is that the right order of names? Yeah. Bob, uh, the Elliot Gould film, I'm sure there's other people in it. Robert Culp. There we go. There's other people in it. Who are the, the other people? There are ladies, not? too. Yeah, um, yeah. Bob, mm. Carol... There's four characters. Bob, Carol, Ted and Al. I mean, to me, that's a much more... In, I mean, it's an obvious point of reference, but I think that in a way, in a funny way, it's almost a more progressive film than this one. I had that same suspicion, that, that same kind of gut feeling, particularly with the, the twist in this film. It mm. sort of was a little bit inevitable, and I, I felt that it went to some effort to kind of... Uh, trend, you know, to really kind of lift that twist out of the kind of comedy gutter, which could have been quite offensive, but I'm not wholly sure quite where I sit with, with that yet. I still haven't quite made up my mind. This film for me actually worked best um, when you put the kind of knob jokes and the painted assholes to the side. Um, when it was dealing with a similar thing to a film that played at Myth this year by Karen Kusama called The Invitation, um, which is a very, very different film, but they both hinge on a kind of paralyzing weirdness of awkward social situations and the, the lengths that people go to to kind of save face, you know, these insane situations and everybody kind of pretends that everything's normal. And that's a really interesting setup. And I think it was those scenes where um, the couple would sort of scurry away and say, this is really strange, but no, 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 it's okay. That was when this film was certainly at its best for, for me. Yeah, I look, I really enjoyed this film and I enjoyed it as a film of... The- of awkward comedy. It reminded me of some of that, you know, Ricky Gervais office type thing where people are having these conversations, trying to impress each other, trying to appear really cool and relaxed. And yeah, sure, cool, man. We're going to go with whatever you're saying. And just saying really dopey, dorky, embarrassing things. And, you know, I did watch it sort of giggling a lot and really, really cringing. I mean, I think some of the more broader jokes like, um, yeah, Jason Schwartzman's very impressive member helped to <laughs> relieve the tension as such. Um, in a way, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I laughed a lot at some of those really obvious jokes and it was a nice release of some of the really uptight, awkward humour they developed. I think it's that social interaction that that works the best. I didn't find this inherently conservative. I mean, I don't think it's short bus, but but I think because just because they make the certain decisions and have the certain outcome that they do doesn't mean it's by default a conservative film because they end up like, you know, yeah, I don't want to spoil the ending. But <laughs> yeah, but, the ending, I'm still not... My, my personal jury is still out about well, the ending. I'm still we not have sure. A, we have a tendency to think that if something resolves in a way that's not hugely transgressive, then therefore it is conservative. And I don't think that's right. I think it's... It reminded me in a similar way to a film like Hump Day, which is the, the beautiful Lynn Sheldon film. I like Hump Day a lot more than yeah. this. Uh, which I did too. Yeah. I did yeah. too. But I'm, I'm, I'm ch- what I'm trying to get at is it's more about how these people resolve these challenges and how they kind of confront their sexual desires and, and the possibility that there might be more to themselves that they had realised before. So it's about how it all unravels. It's not about the end result for me. My feeling is that the twist was 
a little bit clumsy and a little bit lazy, but I do I was I do think that it went to some effort to really redeem that and I'm still not quite sure if it totally did it to a degree that satisfied me. Not in terms of progressive-regressive, but just whether I thought it worked. Look, I've got um, a really mixed feeling because I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's like it didn't unravel in a way that was going to be really sophisticated. It unraveled... It oh. basically ended with a really <laughs> cheap gag, but I found that hilarious. Yeah. Like, the way that, 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 that the final tension was cut was really, really funny, but it was such an easy way out. I do really like the way that they incorporate children in this film. That was actually something, and maybe that's just my own personal experience, but um, yeah, they yeah, don't so. really... <laughs> They don't really exploit the kids in this film. The kids are only in it a little bit, and they don't talk about kids all the time, but it's almost this, you know, there's this constant presence of the children just mentally, and, you know, how do we be people without kids and... And that kind of, I mean, that kind of dynamic I found I found super interesting. And speaking of sophistication, I really just, I mean, we've kind of circled around this, but I, I thought it was a great knob joke. I thought the, I thought the, the Wang humour was fantastic. I, I belly laughed. I thought it was yeah. a really quality dick joke yep. in this film. It is. Uh, and I think... And that, <laughs> it is. Thanks for coming in on this one. <laughs> Take it from one exclamation point. I'm out of here. Until <laughs> next week. Um, I, and that was... I mean, uh, the only thing I really took away from this film as a, a, a real point of interest, apart from Schwartzman's potentially stunt cock, um, well, gee, I, I hope it's real. I hope it's real. So do I. I hope it is. Like it's real. Um, is is the depiction of the male body? I mean, normally in these types of sex comedy, even the, even the ones that often are presented under the allure of being more progressive, still depict the female body in ways that clearly are, are appealing to a male gaze, in ways that eroticise the female body. And I, I think this film deliberately negated that. I mean, are, the first time we see a pair of breasts on the screen, it's in the context of a breast pump where they're deliberately de-eroticised and we don't see... Or the, are they? Well, <laughs> does, yes. I, mean, I, I think the context of the scene... Yeah, I don't yeah. need to justify it, but good. Um, <laughs> but I think the male body stuff is really interesting in terms of nudity because it's such a taboo area for American cinema. Even indie cinema, it's, it's such a sort of rare thing. And I thought there was a sense of ref, a way in which it was refreshingly presented and in the context of those particular those, those key scenes presented for a female audience, a female viewership, and the, res- the response by the two wives, the two partners in, in that scene, I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, I found this film oddly sweet. I actually found it a, a really sweet little film. It's a minor film, but I, I quite enjoyed it. I somehow suspect it's going to speak to the, the anxieties of a lot of men folk <laughs> out there, and it might make for some very awkward viewing for uh, singles and couples. Probably I not suspect. a date film would be my I, guess. Yeah, could yeah. Well, mm, yeah, knows? it could be a good litmus test. I don't want to tell you film. how to live your life. No, <laughs> or make judgments or uh, anything. It's um, yeah. I mean, I found this a very minor film, really. But yeah, it, it is most interesting in how it handles that it is a taboo um but yes i'm fascinated to know but whether the casting involved this whole stunt cock business whether jason schwartzman was cast for his um <laughs> something he may or may not actually possess I mean, how do you even bring that up in and, conversation and the same i was going to say you could google call. it but that's something i never want to google we should also <laughs> point that question towards adam scott because mm. you know the reverse is also <laughs> quite true and that raises even more questions in the case of yes. casting, and I'm not going to... Surely. I also really enjoyed seeing Adam Scott in a, in a more prominent role, in a, in a lead role, because he, he often gets these sort of supporting characters. He's even started to get supporting dramatic characters, as we saw in um, Black Mass, but it's um, it's good to see him get a bit more to do, and I I, I like him playing off uh, Jason Schwartzman too. I think they make quite a fun comedy double. Um the overnight, he's got Jason Schwartzman in a pool <laughs> with a lot of hang down. <laughs> 
And let's get out of here. Let's wrap this show up. Josh, good to have you back. Pleasure. We we won't completely blame you for all the knob jokes. We brought them ourselves. I think we were relatively restrained, actually. Well played. Yeah, I just <laughs> we're meant to be the serious film show. <laughs> Tonight on Plato's Cave, we looked at 99 Homes. It's on limited release through Madman Entertainment. We also looked at The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2. It's on wide release through Roadshow Films. And The Overnight is available on home entertainment through Universal Sony Pictures if you want to pause Jason Swatchman. Hey, please feel free to get in touch. We haven't done this for a while, but you can go to the Plato's Cave page on the RRR website. You can email us at platoscavefilm at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, both Plato's Cave Film. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, please do give us a rating and a really lovely review. And thank you to, I think, the one person who has so far done that. But um, a lot of people do enjoy this show well, listen to it at least through iTunes. So, um, yeah, please give us some nice ratings and help us get the word out on what we do. I'm sure Jason Schwarzman will do that after tonight's episode. Jason Swide, expect you owe us, buddy. Yeah, best and most accurate review show ever. Five stars. <laughs> Uh, you've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, and Josh Nelson. We're all going to be back in the cave next week. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.